Good morning. My name is Scott Warner, and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. Can we have a program today on Persia presented by a distinguished culinary persona with a passion for the subject. Uh, our speaker today, I've been seeing her at conferences, at the Greenbrier's Food Writers Conference, at IACP conferences, where she off, often presents programs, and I'm always asking her to come to speak to us. And finally, after like 20 years, and after more than a year and a half of planning, we're able to get her to come down from Toronto, where she lives. You're an attorney too, aren't you? Ex. Ex-attorney? She, she's, uh, so I, I better mind my P's and Q's here. She's an ex-attorney. But before I tell you about her, I have a question for her that everyone <clears throat> seems to have. Naomi, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, it's, uh, it's a Scottish name. It's oh. Do, do good. You're, you're sure you're right. Yes, I'm sure. Okay. The New York Times didn't say that it was pronounced do It's the newspaper of record, but they're wrong. She she argues her case well. That, 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 do good. Do good. Mm, that's right. Well done. I never would have never known. Thank you. <laughs> Naomi is a traveler writer, photographer, cook, and is often described as a culinary anthropologist. Her newest book, Taste of Persia, oh, like that P, wow, that's a good one. Uh, it's, it's a cook's travels through Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Iran, and Kurdistan, and it was just published this month. And uh, Naomi is also the author of the acclaimed Burma. I'll show you this one. I have, all, I have all of her books. Burma, Rivers of Flavor, and it won the IACP award several years ago. And she's the, well, she's written so many books. I, it was all in the, the handout, that, uh, the flyer that we sent. But on so many wonderful books through extensive travels. And I don't think she misses her legal career at all. And the, her books explore home-cooked foods in their cultural context. context. And Naomi's the photographer for the books and writes them. And uh, she also writes for Lucky Peach and is a contributing editor of Savoir magazine. She conducts intensive cultural immersion through food sessions in northern Thailand each winter, as well as food-focused tours to Burma. And Naomi... Um, well, I already mentioned about your being an attorney, and I hope you don't sue me for, for this introduction, but will you, I was gonna say, come on down and share your passion for Persia. Oh, I like doing that. Passion for, sorry. Uh, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's like making mud pies, sorry. But uh, anyway, we'll, come on down, which you already are, and, and do your thing for us. Taste of Persia. Uh, what I want to talk about, well, this book is really about uh, a region I call Persian culinary region. And your food historians are interested in food history. You know that, in fact, Persian food, Persian food traditions have affected and contributed to culinary traditions from India to Morocco to Northern Europe through various means in various, at various times. I was interested in talking about um, 
the immediate region, so I'm talking about Iran and the Caucasus countries and Kurdistan in Iraq. And the reason for that, first it seemed to me to be doable and, I mean, diverse and difficult but manageable still and anything further afield was going to take me too far afield. But more, more even than that is this is the heartland place of the Persian Empire and these places are closest to Iran have been, um, have been basically conquered uh, by the Persian Empire at various times and strongly influenced. And so there's this sort of deep cultural connection. And um, if you're Georgian or Armenian or if you're Georgian, you might be bridling at this point and saying, wait a minute, Georgian food is not Persian food and what she's saying. I'm not saying that Georgian or Armenian food or any of them are anything but themselves. But what I'm saying is that there is a cousinage, there's a family relationship. And what I wanted to do was contextualize the wonders of Georgian food, the amazingness of Persian food, and cross-connect them. Because I think sometimes that's the best way to kind of get a handle on things, is if you cross-connect them and, and um, contextualize them. So this book is based on not as much travel as I would like to have had. In other words, uh, uh, a trip to Iran for a month, and then after which the rules for Canadians, Canadian passport holders changed and I became, Canadians became like Americans obliged if they were traveling by themselves to have a minder. I mean, of course, the government doesn't phrase it like that in Iran. They say a guide, but we know what the guide is. So, so I didn't go back. First of all, it costs money. Secondly, I can't do what I do if I have a hanger on. Uh, what I do is hang around and chat to people. But who's going to come chat to me if they see some guy. It's always going to be a guy, too. Anyway, and then, um, and then trips to Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and, Ar and, um, and Kurdistan. One trip only to Iraqi Kurdistan, and I was lucky enough to be there before uh, the ISIL breakout from, or ISIS breakout from Syria. So I was in Kurdistan before the war reached um, Kurdistan. And it's not there now. I mean, in other words, Kurdistan is once again intact, but war is going on outside its borders. So um, I want to give you, I've been saying all these words, and I'm sure many of you as gain history people have a sense of the geography, uh, I, but I wanna, I'm going to give you a map, and you're not going to be tested on it after, okay. All right, so that, this is a page from the book. You know, when, when my editor said, when I proposed it, she said, it's a little complicated for people. Where are those places? She's not an ignorant person. She's just saying, hey, how are you going to talk about places people don't know? And uh, so um, there's a, a more detailed map of the Caucasus in the book, but I wanted to give you the whole context. So can you see there, there's Iran. So we're, we're basically in, at the edge of the Indian Ocean. The Gulf of Oman is sort of the edge of the Indian Ocean. So Iran is this large sort of um, lump at the bottom. And then, but I, when I start talking about this, when I don't have a map, I say, imagine there's the Caucasus Mountains, the line between Russia and, and where the colors on the map start. That's the Caucasus Mountains. Sochi is up at the edge of the Black Sea, at the edge of the map there. That's where the Sochi Olympics were, just inside Russia, at the end of the Caucasus Mountains. So there's a line of mountains that goes between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, right? And below, on the other side of those mountains, are the Caucasus countries, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia, all right? And then um, below that, with a the border there, is Iran. 
And then in Kurdistan, it's sort of along the western border, in the hills along the western border of Iran. Okay? And so I just want to say the, the people here in Iran, there are a lot of Azeris. There are more Azeris in Iran, in that corner of Iran, next to Azerbaijan, than there are in Azerbaijan. Okay? There's a large Azeri population in Iran. There's a, there's a, there was an even larger, but there's still a good number of Armenians in Iran. Uh, Shah Abbas, um, one of the powerful rulers of Iran in the 1700s, um, forcibly moved a whole lot of Georgians from Georgia to Iran and moved some troublemaking Iranians of some kind, Persians, but I don't think they were Persians, it was some tribe, and forcibly shoved them into a valley in Georgia, which is still known as a valley of kind of trouble in Georgia. Okay, so in effect, Though I seem to be talking about uh, four countries and a, and a piece of a, an almost country, Kurdistan. Uh, the other thing is there are Kurds on the Iranian side of the border. There are as many Kurds as there are in, in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Okay? So really what I'm talking about is a bunch of people, who, all of whom are part of this sort of Persian world, but are also distinctively who they are. Not at all Persian, thank you very much. Um, but there's a, the borders don't reflect the cultural map, which also, as you know, as people interested in culinary history, is always true, right? Borders never reflect um, cultures. There's always blurring and complication. Okay, so you're not gonna be tested on this, uh, as I said, but I wanna just show you on the map so that then when I mention things as we go through, you'll see. So the climate, see where Tehran is, there the star, at the bottom of the Caspian Sea. Behind Tehran, is is a mountain range running east-west. And so on the north side of that, near the Caspian, it's very moist, it's lush and humid. And it's kind of a place that tourists from the rest of Iran go because it's so exotic to them, because they live in a dry, dry area. And so it's this rather special, it's like going to a rainforest if you live in the desert for them. That's the difference to them. And then um, in... Um, there's Baku and Azerbaijan, see, sticking out into the Caspian, and that's where all the oil and gas is. Armenia used to be, um, of course, greater Armenia, extended over past Lake Van all the way to where the word Turkey is written and further still. And there are important Armenian communities have been in Syria, in Lebanon, all through there, okay? And of course, 101 years ago, the um, genocide began in Turkey, and it actually wasn't the first, um, of Armenians, and so that the large Armenian populations in that part of Turkey died or fled. Um, and so there are a lot of Armenians in North America, and they are mostly from Western, what I would call Western Armenia. And the Western Armenian food, if you've had it, has, is rich with olive oil and so on. The food in Armenia that now exists, the Republic of Armenia, far from the Mediterranean, is not about olive oil. It's quite different and it's really kind of interesting and much more connected. I mean, there's always links, but it's very connected to the food traditions of Iran and Georgia. Okay? I know that's a lot of map, but... It's actually between the two. There's the Tigris, the other river coming down to the left. It just felt like a distraction since it wasn't even where I was talking about, is the Euphrates. And so the fertile area is actually 
It's on both sides of the rivers and the area between them. And it's just unbelievable. It's just rolling and it's deep, deep soil and wheat fields. It's, a, it's extraordinary. Okay, so is that, are we, are we there? Okay. Um, all right, so now we can actually um, get going. Um, I just want to show you, first of all, landscapes. Um, Kurdistan on the border with Iran, near the city of Halabja. Oops, that's a really racing demon here. Uh, Georgia, that first slide was Georgia, by the way, in the mountains in the, in the Caucasus. This is also Georgia. It's a hornbeam beam forest in Kaheti. Uh, this is Azerbaijan, a part of Azerbaijan. This is foothills of the, of the Caucasus. Can you see the scale? There's a, a guy with his horse and the cattle and the, the animals walking. Um, I was walking up this valley from a village I was staying in. Um, wh what's that mountain, anybody? Ararat, exactly. This is Ararat, this is a picture's taken just outside Yerevan, but actually Mount Ararat is in, not in Armenia, it's in Turkey. Um, the, apparently when the, when the Armenian Republic, uh, the Soviet Union broke up and the Armenians uh, then had their republic, independent republic, roughly independent, they uh, used Ararat as their, their symbol, and the Turks, apparently, somebody in Turkey, whatever, said, wait a minute, that's Turkish. And you remember the Turkish flag has got a crescent moon. And the Armenians said, so the moon is Turkish? I don't think so. You know, I mean, it was just, it was basically, a, you know, what I'm saying. It was an F-O. Um, okay, so, um, yes. These are all mine. Yeah, yeah, these are my shots. So, uh, so this is the Caspian Sea, just to remind you that there is water in Iran, even though it's, there's a lot of desert. And a, a woman I met, I met her sons, and they invited me. And uh, anyway, walking, nobody else is around, so she can have her shoes off and, you know, the pleasures of being, uh, there's a story about her in the book. Um, and then this is another part of Iran, the contrast. This is um, east of Mashhad in northeastern Iran, closer to the Afghan border, and it's, you know, pretty dry. But this is where saffron grows. Um, so now, okay, history. You're culinary historians, so I did a longer slideshow for you. I thought, oh, they'll be interested. They'll be, I'll be able to be geeky with them. I can't do this, you know, when I'm talking at a, at a cooking class or something. I mean, I have to kind of zip through. But you guys, I'm luxuriating. And so you can snooze if I'm driving you crazy. But I want, it's a pleasure to, for me to be able to cast my net a little more widely and a little deeper. So this is, um, this is the tomb of Cyrus the Great. I just thought you'd want a start point. Actually, the tomb of Cyrus the Great at Pasargad, Pasargadai, which is um, north of Shiraz, and it's, uh, it's, it was a battle, a famous battle. Uh, and this is the place where uh, Rostam, nor just north of Shiraz, very close, where Darius, one, two, three, is, are buried. Cyrus, one, two, three, are, I mean, not Cyrus, uh, Xerxes, you know. And I just, it was so amazing to me because, you know, when, in the school curriculum when I went to high school in Ontario, uh, we learned about the Greeks and the Romans, and before that, the, the Greeks and the Persians, the Battle of Marathon, Xerxes, you know. It didn't ever make sense to me. Well, why were the Persians there? What was the deal? Why were they arguing? What's going on? It never... It never clicked, and it was when I was here that it really, and, and also when I read about the Byzantines, it started to make sense, this whole argument about who controls uh, the landmass that's now Turkey, 
who controls the Caucasus countries. And so the Persians and the, and the Byzantines, the Persians and the Greeks before that, were, con were arguing for you know, control that was empires. And so, therefore, the Battle of Marathon. There's a, here, there's a, you can't see it really well, but there's, a, there's an, et, an uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Bas relief there. And it's a Roman, um, the, the, there's one where the, there's a Roman emperor who's being conquered by a Persian and held as a prisoner. And there's a, there's a thing depicting it. Huge scale and very exciting. Okay, sorry, now I've done that. I've got another sort of geek thing to talk about later, but okay, and this is in Persepolis. This is the, the capital of the Persian Empire built by Darius, and, that, and here's foreigners bringing offerings to, so this is little lambs, uh, bringing offerings to, you know, to the emperor. And um, this was, it's still there in ruins. It's in ruins because Alexander the Great came through and it got torched. Um, but it's a rather remarkable place to go. Again, just north of Shiraz. Okay. Um, so now people. Um, and I want to start with layers of religion because really, uh, of course, we, we assume animism everywhere. And then the first uh, monotheistic religion uh, is Zoroastrianism, predates Judaism. Some would argue about that, but I'm just going to say it. Um, and this is a Zoroastrian woman in, in uh, Yazd in Iran. They're... Mm, Persecuted a little, but they basically still, they're, they're okay there, unlike the Baha'i. Um, and I can tell that she's Zoroastrian because she's wearing the bright colors and she's just, it's a certain style, a certain look. Um, so Zoroastrianism, you know, it's Ahura Mazda is the great god and it's, the sun is very important. Fire and keeping the fire going is important. And of course the Zoroastrians, when there was the Muslim conquest, Many of them fled, and some of them fled to India, and that's, that's the Parsis, those are the ancestors of the Parsis. Um, but there are still a lot of Zoroastrians in Persia, in Iran, and also there were fire temples in Baku, in Tbilisi, in Georgia. In other words, it's a, it left its mark still. New Year in Iran, even under the Ayatollahs, even with the Muslim calendar, New Year in Iran is a set date, and it is the spring equinox. It's no Ros, meaning new, new day. And actually, that day is celebrated all through the region from, from Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan to Georgia. There's, a, there's an awareness of that date. And of course, Christianity picked that up. And we have Easter as the renewal and rebirth. And so in Georgia and in Armenia, Christian nations, people do as people in Iran do for Noros, the Christians, not knowing that it's Zoroastrian, um, sprout wheat and make a plate of green sprouted wheat and put it on the table. But the Christians put Easter eggs on it, and it's the table decoration. But it's, it's all about new life, and this, the, the root of it is in Zoroastrianism. Um, this is, then, then came, well, and then there were Jewish populations that came in succession, and then came Christianity, and this is an Assyrian Christian woman, Assyrian. Her first language is Aramaic, a language I didn't know was still current. The services are in ancient Aramaic. This is in Kurdistan. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's an ancient, the ancient biblical language. It's sort of extraordinary, and your mind sort of starts to go, whoa, all these things I didn't know, you know, it's just, this was sort of, I felt bathed in ignorance 
in this, in this, in doing this book because there were all these layers of things that reverberated for me but that I hadn't really taken hold of. Um, and so Christian, this is the, isn't that unbelievable? This is the um, Armenian cathedral, Vank, in um, Isfahan in, in, in Iran. Extraordinary. Because when you're in Iran, there's no, under Islam, there's no uh, figurative decoration. It's all tile work. There's flowers, but there's no people. And to walk into this cathedral and suddenly have this, it's almost an assault of detail and color and, you know, it was ex really amazing. Um, Christianity in, in Georgia, this is in Kaheti in eastern Georgia, and there's the Caucasus, see, across the frontier. The other side is, is Russia, Dagestan. And then came Islam with the, with the Islamic conquest in the seventh century. And so I've just, these are here to sort of give you an idea. This is in Yazd, actually, the previous one's in Isfahan. And this is a village, I wanted to show you a picture of damp. Uh, this is a village north of those mountains in Iran, Masule. So, and this is a place I was, and it was very interesting, but where I met a, a number of Iranian tourists because they were there for the pleasure of being in a place where it rained. It rains, you know, pretty well every day. Um, that's a mosque, that's a mosque, so just following through. And so, and then the Yazidis, and there's a question of when Yazidism started, and it might actually predate, with the Kurds, it may predate the coming of Islam to the Kurds. So it's Kurdish people who were, what would I say, ethnically Kurdish, is complicated territory. Um, this uh, 21 point sun, so you can see the connection back to Zoroastrianism, um, is the symbol on the Kurdish flag. And the Yazidis, whom you read about because of Mount Sinjar and, and the massacre there during the war, um, the Yazidis, their home church, if I can put it that way, is in a, a village called Lalish in northern Kurdistan. And there's a Yazidi woman in Lalish. So, okay, so we got the landscape, we got the people, and so now let's, just, let's talk about the food. You are culinary historians. Okay, so the most important thing, of course, and this goes back to the Tigris and Euphrates, is wheat. And so, um, who was it asked me about it? Emma? Kathy, you did. So, um, this is two kinds of wheat in a market in Armenia. Um, they're, you know, the old varieties are there. They use a wheat that uh, the easiest, the closest thing is emmer uh, here, and emmer, uh, is an early variety of wheat. It is available in stores. You can use what the, is labeled farro in Italian grocery stores, not exactly the same, but, um, and then there's another wheat that they cook, steam cook, and then dry, so it's almost pre-cooked wheat, and then they use that in soups because it cooks quickly. Anyway, it's a, there's a very complex, wonderful, rich tradition using, making use of wheat in every way. Um, but, you know, flatbreads. Uh, if any of you who've come across anything that I've done know that flatbreads are kind of where I start. Um, flatbreads and rice, but especially, well, not especially. Especially flatbreads, yes. So this is in Kurdistan. So here's an unleavened dough, and she's, she has a, she's sort of stretching it and pulling it because she's going to make extremely thin flatbreads. So I've got a little geography of flatbreads here for the next 10 minutes, and if you're celiac, close your eyes, but everybody else. Okay, um, so... Uh, I stayed in, the, in her mother's household, and uh, here she is stretching it. You see, that's the bread. She's stretching it on a pillow. It's so fine, you can see her fingers through it, right? 
Um, and then she's going to cook it on a saj. There's the saj. It's like an upside-down wok, and she's lifting it off. She doesn't flip it over. The color on the top is because it's cooked through. It cooks in about a minute. She's got it over a gas flame. You know, earlier it would have been over fire, of course, and even harder to manage in terms of the heat. Um, and she made, I, I was there with her as she started, and then she made in the course of a morning probably 200 breads in a stack. And then that would be for the family, her family and her mother's family down the street. And they get put in a plastic bag. And if they dry out, nobody cares because you then just tear them up and put them in soup. You're, you're going to eat it one way or another. Um, so it's not all about, oh, that fresh bread from the bakery. It's about bread as food, as essential. And there's the thinness of it. Just a shot to give you an idea. It's almost transparent. So nanitire was the word that they used in Kurdistan. When I was in, uh, and you'll see later, when I was with nomads in Iran, they used the same word nanitire. It was very interesting to me for, for an unleavened bread that was very like this. Um, so here's then a leavened bread, a, a form of lavash, um, in northern Iran, in that rainy village, Masule. This baker was the most dynamic guy. He just, there's the, he's cooking it in a tandoor oven, right? He's spreading it on the pillow and then slapping it against the wall and then chatting to the neighbors. And he's got two or three in there, it's not just one. And he's just, he was moving all the time. Here's another form of lavash, but this is a tandoor oven that's on a bit of an angle. This is a kind of classic Iraqi tandoor. And the Iraqi tenders of the, of the Jewish Iraqis who moved to Israel, for example, are the same. They're on a slope quite distinctively, and everybody else's is sort of straight down. Um, so this is in uh, a suburb of Arbil, the capital of Kurdistan. These guys took, me, took good care of me. And here in that same place, there's somebody lifting a bread away. Um, and then still in Kurdistan, but in a town called Suleimania, an older man buying breads. This would just be for, this was just before lunch, so he would have been buying them to take them home for the noon meal. And even if the family's large, that is a lot of bread, you know. Um, and then in Iran, a woman in Kashan, famous for its rose water and other uh, waters, uh, carrying breads home for lunch. Not everyone in Iran looks like this. She's wearing the tr a traditional chatter, but you know, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, maybe twice a day. I mean, you, if you're, for example, in Kurdistan, she's making bread for the family. But if you're in a town or a village, you know, you'll shop maybe twice a day. In Iran, in fact, people go and get bread in the morning for their breakfast bread. I'll show you it. And then they'll go back to get bread at lunchtime. Yeah. Yes. It was really fast because she's just doing them a minute. How, oh, sorry. How long did, that, did it take to make the 200 breads? You know, I was photographing and enjoying myself. But I... I mean, each bread was maybe a minute on there, you know. So it was really fast, actually. Yes? When I was in the villages, what language was I speaking? Well, the language of gesture. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, there'd be somebody with some English. In, in, in um, Georgia, there's a lot of English. In Armenia, um, somebody will speak English somewhere, a bit of extremely bad Russian in the Caucasus countries. Um, I have the Farsi words for cooking. In Kurdistan, there was no English. There was some English, but not with the woman I stayed with. But the cooking words are the same as Urdu. They're very related. All the Iranic languages, so, so Farsi, Persian, uh, Kurdish, uh, various Kurdish languages, Urdu, they all have the same Iranic roots. So 
all the words for like salt, namak, and things. So it was really wonderful when I discovered that Kurdish was that close. It made it very simple. I could just double check something by asking. And you know, it's funny, it's not that I can think of all those words now, but in the situation, you know, the, the, that drawer way at the back of my untidy filing system comes sliding open and the paper comes scattering out and usually I can pick up one or two and then, oh, I can find my way. So yeah, but mostly the language of gesture. Um, so, and then this is in Mashhad, and these guys uh, look like Afghans, uh, and they're baking in a deep tandoor. Um, you see, he's, str he's stretching it, he's whirling it on his hand, the bread. These are leavened breads. The guy in the back has got the, 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 um, the lumps of dough that have been shaped, and then from there it gets flattened out, and then this guy really flattens it out, and then it goes into the oven. That's why he's wearing the mask. That's why he's got the thing on his arm. Because it's deep and it's, and this is the kind of oven that Afghans, you, you, I saw in Peshawar uh, when the, in the Afghan refugee camp. So, but this is in Mashhad, in that northeastern corner of Iran near the Afghan border. Um, okay. Oh, you know, I'm just gonna say very hot. But because, because I have actually, well I've put breads in a Georgian oven I had to do it on TV in Georgia in the spring. It was pretty weird. I mean, I'm really going to do this. I've cooked in a tandoor oven here, but you know, somebody else's oven, a TV person said, well, you know, could you put a bread in the oven? The baker said, okay, rolling her eyes a little bit. Um, it's hot. I think um, when I was working with the tandoor oven here, there's a company that makes them outside or in, uh, in Bellingham, Washington. And um, stone, something stone, I can't remember. Uh, the name of the company. Um, I think it's about 700 degrees. It's, you know, when you're over 500, it's hot, you know? I mean, really. Um, so you can make them on a, on a uh, unglazed, uh, on baking tile in the oven, but you have to scale the breads down to small enough that you can manage it. So you still get a um, circulation. You get the bottom surface cooking one way, like on the tandoor, and then the top surface another. So these are breads, and now this is really, it's only to you I'm showing this because I'm assuming that you're interested in everything. Um, th these are breads I found in a, I came across in uh, Al-Kalikali, which is a town in southern Georgia, right near the Armenian and Turkish borders. Okay, there's a border with Turkey for both of them. It was the old border between the USSR and the West, so it used to be fortified. So this little town, high, bleak, and very beautiful because there's snow-capped mountains around, um, has a lot of Armenians in it and a lot of Russians still in it, some of them Dukabors. And these women were making a bread that is Armenian and that, from that region of Georgia, and they were shaping it in this most interesting way. So here's the round here, they, they, you know, the, they've been proofing. And then she took this wet side of her hand and made these cuts across it with her hand, very densely. And then it was stretched. So it's another way of stretching a dough. So it ended up with a rim but the rim was stretched, and then a dented surface. But I would never, seeing the cooked bread, have guessed that this is how it started. So it was really interesting to be able to be in the bakery. This was on Palm Sunday, Orthodox Palm Sunday. People I was staying with, I was staying with the bishop, actually, were at the service. I was looking for bread. And, um, so, and the other kind of bread there was, a, was a, a, this is a donut shape. There's a hole in the middle, and then it was just stretched. Okay, so these are breads people also make at home. They're, it's close to home style. I came across a home style version in Armenia. Okay, and then, okay, the Georgian oven. See, it's a wider, 
um, it's called a tone in Georgian. It's a wider opening and it's shallower. It's not very tall. She's not a giant. It's just not that tall. There's, uh, it's set into the ground a bit, but still not very tall. It's heated by gas now. But see, instead of laying the breads vertically, as the guy did in the wet village, Masule, they're laid around the oven, which means that you end up with this baton-shaped bread. Okay? It's pretty fun. Hmm? Do you have any idea how old that oven might be? This particular oven? No idea. But the, the oven generally goes back to, I, in the flatbread book I talked about this because I ran into a, an, an archaeologist, a prehistoric ar or archaeologist of ancient times, and he was doing a Silk Road survey. This was in 1989. And, and um, he said, well, it goes back to before Sasanian times. We think it goes back. I mean, it was, you know, he was in, in prehistory for me because I said, when can you say there wasn't a tandoor oven? And he really kind of couldn't tell me. Um, so it's old. It's a really ingenious. People dug holes in the ground and cooked on that surface. That's what they do in um, Tunisia. It's, it's really an interesting technology. Um, okay. So, and that's what they look like all in a row. I just, I just love the, the look of them, the geometry of it. So in Georgia, though, they also have filled breads. Also in Armenia and um, Azerbaijan. Um, and uh, this is the famous... Khachapuri, which you may have read about, K-H-A, Khachapuri. And um, so it's got, this one has cheese and herbs in it. The classic one just has cheese. Um, and there's another one for fasting days for the Orthodox Church, which involve eating no animal product, which has stuffed with cooked beans. Um, and you can cook it on the stovetop or in an oven. Many people in Georgia don't have ovens, and they just, it's stovetop cooked. And of course, they buy them at the bakery. In um, there's a recipe in the book for a, an unleavened dough wrapped around greens or, or cheese or squash, cooked squash from Azerbaijan. There's another version of that in Armenia. Oops, I went backwards. Oh, there we are. Uh, so, Iran. Um, anybody know what this is? Sagak. Aha, big smiles in the back row. So, yeah, see in that oven there, that... What is that? That's a bread and a heap of stones. Sang, sang means, uh, means stone in, in Persian. And so the oven is heated, and your baking surface, instead of being um, masonry, is just a, a heap of stones that are heated very hot again. I don't know how hot. And, but the opening is very narrow. You don't want the heat to escape. And so the baker is working with a very narrow peel, and it's wetted, and then the dough, he takes the dough, stretches it on the peel, takes it in, lays the, the, the upper end of it on the stone so it catches, then pulls the peel out from under, which stretches the dough a little more. The, the pastry cooks and the bakers are nodding. And then, and then up it cooks. And there, he'll have two or three or four breads in there at a time, moving them around to try and make sure the heat's even. And not turning them over, again, because the bottom's cooking with the stone and the top is cooking with the circulating air. And then... They get hung on a hook, right? And so I'm standing with the other people who are at the bakery, and this is lunchtime bread and afternoon bread. So everyone lines up about 11 o'clock, you start to see lines, and you can find the bakery from the fabulous smell and from the lines. So I'm standing there, this is in, this is in Isfahan, but I, was, I remember in Tabriz, I was standing there, and, um, and a guy spoke English, and he said, do you want one bread or many? It's a good question. I said, I said, just one. He said, well, then you need to be in this line. And so how it is is you're waiting. 
And so the baker gives one of the many's, you know, a, his stack, and then several of the ones, their singles, right? And so it goes. So there's a fairness, it's all navigated. It's really interesting. And of course, I had really good conversations in the lines at the bakeries. Um, so it's just a, an amazing thing to watch this dance, because the other thing you have to do is the pebbles sort of slide down a little as you're, you know, the breads pull them down. So there's a sh little shovel thing the guy has with another long handle, and he's always, there's the sound of stones shoving them back up. Really just amazing technology. Now, this is being replaced in, in North Toronto, for example, there's a new style Sangak oven, and uh, there must be in other pla and places in the States, and it's a you know, modern thing, and it, it's a thing that rotates a surface, and it's got little regular little machine-made bumps on it. So you have a bread with bumps, but hey, it's just, I'm sorry, not the same thing. Um, okay, so here's what it looks like close up. So the breads get, they might get hung on a hook, or as here, this was in Tabriz, they get laid on a, on a mesh thing so that they can cool, but of course the mesh thing eventually, it's on a tray, accumulates all the rocks that have fallen out of the breads. And so this one was getting full, they were gonna have to dump it out soon, right? It's like crumbs in the toaster. Eventually you have to get rid of it, or ash in your, in your um, in your um, barbecue. Um, so that gives you a sense of the dented surface, you know. Isn't that amazing? It's just really something. It's so fun to be able to show you these. I may be anticipating your lecture. Um, you know, I see beers with bread and beer and wine. Yeah. I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to be talking about wine for sure, a little. I mean, not knowledgeably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking it's got to be wheat. Well, you know, it's a question of which, you know, which came first and what. I think the thing is wheat is more valuable. It's stronger. So in that sense, you'd use your barley for beer because your wheat you need for, it's easier to work with for bread. That, that might be one possible way of thinking about it. But, you know, I am absolutely not the expert. No, no, great. So here's, I sort of backwards because I did the Sangak first. This is, guys, in that rainy village again, uh, shaping Barbary bread. You see they're using stiff fingers and they're making lines of dents, regular lines of dents. There's a picture like this in the book, a uh, process picture. So Barbary bread is eaten at breakfast. And um, this is then what it looks like. This is in a cafe in Tabriz. And then there's this very thick kind of thickened yogurt cream, gorgeous, um, with honey. I mean, delicious. Um, and then there's me, this is your, this is my auto shot. There's me in the mirror shooting the shot in this cafe in Tabriz. And yes, I am in fact, as it turns out, the only woman in the room, but it wasn't weird. Uh-huh. Oh, of course I do. Because, I mean, sorry. I shouldn't have said it like that, should I? Um, no, uh, yes, the, the reason for denting or the, or the Armenian women doing the denting or whatever is, you know, if you don't, if you just ha flatten a bread and then um, even if it's unleavened, but certainly if it's leavened um, and it's a little bit thicker, um, it's going to puff and be like a pita. Well, if you are going to put a, these are generally baked actually in a flat oven, but if you're going to put a bread in a tandoor and it's going to puff, what's it going to do? It's going to fall off the wall. It's going to pull itself off the wall before it's ready. You might say, well, how does the bread come off the wall in the tandoor? Okay, you slapped it on. You leaned over. You got yourself, your eyelashes singed and you, because um, you didn't have your mask on properly. And you slapped it on and then, and then okay, now what? Well, now what is that 
um, and you may have noticed the little hole in the bread the guy was lifting off that picture from Kurdistan. What happens is the, the bread, as it cooks, if you think, the reason it sticks, I need my other hand, the reason it sticks is because um, the, the dough is wet. The surface is hot, so it sticks. That's the proteins kind of sticking. But as they hard, and the, the starches, I should say, sticking. But as everything cooks, the proteins first gelatinize and stick, and then they firm up. And as they firm up, and the rest of the top of the bread is cooking, and you don't want the bread too thick, and you want the dense, it helps, again, gives you better surface. As they firm up, the bread starts to peel off the, because what's cooking it on the back is, I think, um, I'm not Harold McGee, but is that the, the moisture in the dough, you never have a really dry flatbread in a tender oven, they're always a bit moist. The moisture in the dough is actually given off as steam. It, it steam cooks itself on the wall. Do you see what I mean? And sort of pushes itself off the wall as, it, as all the starches firm up. Am I making sense to you? So you get the crisp bottom surface. The top surface is cooking by circulating air like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Convection oven, right? So that's another reason for the tandoor to be fairly deep because it keeps the moisture in, right? I'm sure there are tandoors in Chicago. Well, there you go. Where's the Georgian bakery? Devon? Okay, well, go forth and check out, okay? All right, so, um, so I had to put this in right here because this is in Azerbaijan and this is a honey guy. And there was a picture of the honey and I just wanted you to see because honey is a, um, they're land-raised bees in the Caucasus and they're actually being, some of them are being brought in to try and strengthen the bees here. Um, and so honey is hugely important. I mean, this is a place that's fairly far from sugar trade. So long ago, honey and fruit was were people's sweeteners as, as everywhere. Um, and so you see honeycombs in, in Azerbaijan, in Georgia, you know, at monasteries, sort of everywhere. And this guy and his cat, so adorable, standing there on a hillside in Azerbaijan, eastern Azerbaijan. Um, so um, that shot of me in the bazaar, bazaar I, I want to sort of riff off the word bazaar. The honey shot was sort of a diversion. Um, so shops, shops, how do shops look? It's always an interesting question. Where do people go? How do you, like, where are restaurants? Where are shops? How does it work? This is a little shop, like a corner store, kind of here or anywhere. Um, this is in Azerbaijan, in the town of Sheki. Notice in the front there's pickles, there's, um, there's a form of ajika, which is a Georgian um, chili paste. It's autumn and so, you know, all the bounty of everything. He's got, that's actually a bottle of uh, yogurt that Kid has. This is a different form of shopping market. This is in Kerman in southern Iran and these gorgeous covered bazaars built in a time of prosperity. It's natural air conditioning because you've got these arcades and you're protected from the heat. You know, in Northern Europe, the cloisters protected monks from rain and snow. In the South, you have the arcades, of course, protecting from the heat um, and, uh, and from wind. And here's people shopping in the bazaar. And this, it can be anything from food to pans to clothing to anything. Fabulous, actually, the Kerman Bazaar. And there's guys making uh, copper pots, and I mean, it's a f wonderful place. Um, what? What are the costs compared to the states? Oh, it's so hard to, to. I would say that 
given the incomes of people, it's about equivalent. Do you see what I mean? If you, you know, people are still worrying about food. Um, there are more people in the Caucasus who have some self-reliance in food if they live outside the cities. Um, in the cities, there's that trade-off. You have to pay someone to produce it for you, um, and he has to earn a living, and you have to pay for it, and you know that navigation goes on all across the world. Okay, and this is in Suleimania, which is in Kurdistan. So just to gain a glimpse of the street, just to give you a feel. All right, so what's in these places? Well, and th these are the essentials of the cuisine. I, I mean, we've talked about uh, wheat and bread, perhaps endlessly, but there's rice over there on the left. This is in Kurdistan, so that's Kurdish rice, which is a, more like a Mediterranean rice. Then uh, chickpeas and other legumes, mung dal, uh, uh, other dals, um, black-eyed peas, uh, n um, navy bean-ish kinds of thing, white beans, um, all kinds of legumes. They're so important, but they, they come always dressed with flavor and nuance, so instead of one legume, often, in, certainly in, in Iran and Persian tradition, in the green soups, I call them green soups, called ash, um, there's two or three kinds of bean used in the soup, as well as a little rice. And people argue about which combinations are best, and I mean, there's very strong feelings about everything. But, um, but it's never just one, so it's never a one note. There's always this layering of flavor, these subtleties. And you're not even aware you're eating beans in a way, because you're eating the combination of them, and it's the old more than the sum of its parts kind of thing. Um, and in the back left is sumac, which is, you know sumac, right? Right. So. Um, and that, you run into sumac, especially in, in Kurdistan and in Azerbaijan. Uh, it seems to be, it's where I saw it most, is what I would say. Um, I don't know why that is, but it's a lovely, it gives you a tingly, tart, sort of lemony taste. Okay, and here's the other thing, All right? So, no one could call this a field of color. <laughs> the, the, so, there's a story in the book about searching for saffron, I'll leave you to read it there, but, um, Eventually, when I, we, the guy I was with and I came on some saffron, it was, you know, flower by flower. This is in the afternoon. In the morning, there would be more, but not a lot. And the flowers are picked and then taken to a village, put on a table, and then women in the village pull the stigmas out, and then the stigmas are accumulated, and then someone buys them, and each time the price goes up um, until finally it becomes saffron. Um, in a shop in Mashhad, for example, the closest city to here. So it's it, the biggest area of production of saffron in the world is, uh, as I understand it, is in that area uh, east of Mashhad along the Afghan border. There's uh, also in Kashmir, of course, also in Spain, but because it's so labor-intensive, you know, it used to be produced in England, Saffron Walden as a town was known for its saffron, but it's so labor-intensive that now it has to be produced in a place where the labor costs are lower, right? It's not worth it in industrialized world. So how long will this go on? I don't know. Um, and I have a whole sort of thing too about why saffron, why yellow? And I think it goes back to Zoroastrianism and a worship of the gold and the yellow and the sun and an appreciation. So this is in, see, look at this, Noroz, see the word for, for New, the new year, new day, but it's a brand. Um, and this is in Kurdistan, in, uh, in Suleimania. And this rice, some of it comes from Thailand, some of it comes from India, um, some of it is Kurdish, but uh, you know, it's, and some of it's American, I think. 
Um, because it would be an, for international trade. So it's going to come from everywhere. It's, you know, it's not targeted. Kurdistan is too small for anybody to target them as a main market, right? So they're going to get it from all over. Um, so this is the other thing I wanted to mention is the oil. I said to you earlier that Western Armenian food is olive oil uh, based, uh, but in this part of the world, we're far from olives. I'll have a, I have a footnote for that. So the main cooking oil is sunflower oil which can be very good if you have a good version of sunflower oil. So I urge you to try it, but there's no need to. You can use olive oil, of course. I'm just saying, traditionally. And so here's sunflower. This is in Georgia and Tbilisi. Um, in Iran, the footnote is that in Iran, um, there have been olive trees growing for a long time. You, the oil was used for lamps, um, uh, not for eating. And so it's only recently that, and perhaps it's sanctions, or maybe it was before, that it's become a crop, you know, olives are being processed and sold, and olive oil is being used for culinary reasons. And um, the other place that oil is used uh, is by the Yazidis, remember them. Um, they use it in their rituals. It's a very important part of their, it's for cleaning things, and so there's vats of olive oil. And they're in northern Kurdistan. And so there's olive trees in those villages. I mean, those poor olive trees are miles from the Mediterranean. But they, it's, it's an important thing. So that's something they tend and care for. And of course, the olive trees were one of the things that got destroyed along with the rest with, with war and invasion. And OK. Yes? No? Yazidis, the Yazidis, it's a syncretic religion. It's not Islamic. It's not Christian. It's not. Um, you know, it, it, it's its own thing. But it takes from, there are elements of, of Zoroastrianism, uh, a few elements of Islam, but they don't have, I mean, it's not like they're revering Muhammad above all or any of that. So it's just, it, they're their own, which is why they're viewed as infidels by the, um, the crazies, basically. You know, anytime you're really doctrinaire, you want to eliminate anyone who disagrees with you, and that so the Yazidis find themselves in that situation a lot because they're such a small group and there's so many other people who think they're wrong. Right? Um, all right, so the other big thing is herbs and greens. You know what they look like, but I just had to put it in here because, so, you know, dill, uh, green onion, uh, parsley, uh, coriander that here you, especially in wonderfully um, Spanish-speaking Chicago, you call cilantro, um, lettuce, uh, tarragon up there. Look at those huge tarragon leaves up there. I mean, it's just amazing. And on the table are fresh herbs kind of all the time. So it's, it's really, they're used as almost a seasoning. You can reach out, you have a bite of your kebab or something, and then you reach out and crunch on a bit of a green onion. Or It's like when you eat pho in a Vietnamese restaurant. You know, you have that choice. You can put it in your soup, but you also can have it sort of as a little side freshener. I mean, we... Traditionally in Northern Europe, the condiments we have are, you know, salt, pepper, and maybe a little hot mustard for that roast beef. This is so much more interesting. Um, and so I'm really hoping... What? Um, I would call it flat leaf parsley. Um, but, you know, you can call it Italian parsley. Um, and the other thing is, and radishes. So crisp fresh, you know, radishes, of course, last a long time. They keep well. Uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of spinach used in cooking. Um, it's just really, it's, it's wonderful, really wonderful. Um, another one, it's my last one. Yeah, and yes, of course, people smoke cigarettes. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, it's, there's really, and then celery leaf lavage and celery leaf, um, different kinds of greens. This is in Armenia and Yerevan. Uh, and a final shot, this is in Halabja in Kurdistan. Um, I wanted to have this shot in here so you could see these guys. This is not because they're on parade. This is traditional uh, Kurdish clothing and people in this town because it's quite traditional. The men, the older men certainly dress like this all the time. Um, and uh, uh, this, Halabja is also the city, the town, uh, that uh, the people I stayed with fled to Iran in 87 because Saddam Hussein was attacking and there was a war, basically. He was making war on the Kurdish population. And a year after they fled across those green hills we saw early, um, uh, in one morning uh, with a chemical attack, uh, Saddam Hussein killed 5,000 people in this town and then started to take bulldozers to it and then there was a pushback and so on. So that, that chemical attack is part of why the Kurds were able to get a no-fly zone and get the autonomy that they got in the early 90s because basically they'd been so done to um, by, by Saddam Hussein and, and central Iraq that they were sort of given a protected status and have been able to establish themselves as an almost country. Um, I just feel I can digress with you guys. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, so we're now in Azerbaijan. I wanted just to show you the general, whoa, this is autumn. Um, in Sheki, and uh, you know, there's just everything under the sun. It's very fertile, pomegranates, you know, eggplants and so on. Also, um, this whole area along the Caucasus, in other words, in the foothills just at the south of the Caucasus, in Georgia and in Azerbaijan especially, um, was a big silk producing area long ago. There's a silk museum in Tbilisi in, in Georgia, which is a do not miss, that was built in 1900. Um, when it was in Russian control, and it's, it's phenomenal. So that means there are mulberry orchards. Now they're no longer producing silk. Again, an issue of labor and time and skill and all that. They're finding the silk uh, manufacturers are finding cheaper silk, first in Soviet Central Republics in Uzbekistan, and now from China. So there's not much silk manufacture at all. The mulberry orchards are still there, and what do they do with the mulberries? Anyone? They eat them, there's a bit of jam, they use them, tart mulberries you can use in cooking. Um, they're called tut in all the languages there. Uh, they make tutovka, they make vodka with it. It's like shlivovica, you know, it's a, it's a uh, and it's, I have to say, delicious. Um, I never had one that was really sort of harsh hooch. Like it was always sort of a, I mean, people really know what they're doing is what I'm saying. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, and it's the kind of medium of welcome. Uh, when you're not having a tea or a coffee earlier in the day, uh, Tutovka is your medium of welcome, usually then chased by um, some tar a sour cherry juice. It's a great combo. You don't mix, somebody said, oh, so you mean you make a cocktail? I said, are you kidding? You would no never sully the one with the other. You have the one, and then you have the other, and then you go back to the first one, and you get the idea. So, and it comes in plastic bottles. I mean, people make their own, yes. Are they using Western-style pesticides? They haven't had the money uh, for that. Uh, in Soviet times, these countries were not uh, large enough agricultural producers either to be sort of producing largely. I think in central Azerbaijan they probably did because there's a, the valley that goes out, it widens as it goes out to the Caspian, is very fertile, and there may have been. But generally speaking, no, they just don't have the... But that pressure is coming. 
And so all the companies are in there trying to, saying, here, we're going to give you aid, and it's going to be in the form of you know, our products, which we want you to depend on subtext. Right? So I don't know where this is going. Yes? Uh, the tomatoes, uh, you mean in the conceptual Colombian transfer sense? How did they reach to the Caucasus? I don't know, but if you think about, there's, there's so much more trade and transfer in the region and across the region than we imagine over time. And my best guess is the Mediterranean and then you know Turkish trade. And these, these ones might even be in from Turkey in an earlier time. There's to, Turkey has an earlier season than Georgia and Azerbaijan, um, but by this time of the year, these would be from Azerbaijan. Is that, is that making sense? Um, so, and in fact, the Georgians are quite distressed. I mean, one of the disadvantages of having the open border now that Georgia's in the West rather than being the front end of, of the Iron Curtain countries is that um, there's an invasion of Turkish, uh, you know, garlic and tomatoes and all that kind of stuff. And so people are, are getting those springtime things earlier, which is very nice for them, but it's also a little bit crazy-making for people who are concerned about the culinary traditions of the country. Well, I don't think that it's not considered it. I think mostly it is pretty clean, but but not. You can't ever rely. I don't know, and uh, certainly the Turkish is not. Uh, and also in terms of wine, just to jump to that, um, there's certainly in Georgia there have been pesticides for a long time for the for the vineyards. They were growing commercially for the Soviet Union. That was a big business. Then they then the Russians cut them off for a while cut the trade off, and now it started again. And I know a guy who grows, has an organic wine, but there, it's not common that people are consciously and self-consciously organic in wine production, because that's really, we're talking cash money. So many of this, these things would be small producers, although this certainly doesn't look like it in front, but often you have small farmers and, yeah, more, more cigarettes. I just wanted you to, you know. Um, speaking of organic, you know. Um, so this is in Tbilisi. It's just irresistible because these cabbages, there's a wonderful, you know, cabbage rolls are a thing I always thought, oh yeah, it's sort of, I think of them as Polish or Russian and I think of pork or mm, nameless meat kind of inside and it's a pleasure to bite into but I probably don't want more than one or two. It's not my tradition and I don't, there's not enough veg in the veg to meat combo but there's a fabulous cabbage roll tradition in the region, probably filtered in from Russia, but who knows? Because again, attributing origin to things is very difficult in here with all the flow back and forth. Um, but because again, I mentioned the fasting tradition in, in Georgia and Armenia, you know, no animal products in those long periods, there's all these brilliant dishes. Um, I would think of them as workarounds, except they, they are a real thing in themselves and f delicious. Um, and especially you want them to be delicious because people are doing without, so you want them to forget that they're doing without, right? Um, and so the, the fasting, I urge you to try the fasting cabbage rolls in the book. I, the first time I, I mean, I had one, at, uh, the, the Armenian woman who showed it to me, a woman named Sonia, fabulous, she, it was from the day before and she'd saved me one to taste when she knew I was coming. Um, and then I made two versions, as suggested by her, of that fasting roll at home when I was figuring out the recipe, and uh, from her, you know, instructions. But still, you have to figure it out. And I couldn't stop eating them. It was just one of those things. I picked, and I thought, 
And it was sort of like the eggplant roll-ups you're going to have here. You, as you're having one, you're thinking about reaching for another one. It's, you know, one of those problems, right? And so, um, so I thought I have to do something. So I, I took a batch of them to a friend's place, and she lives in a building, left them with the door woman. And um, my friend got home and phoned me three hours later and said, what have you done to me? I've just eaten my way through, you know, I left her 12, and she'd eaten her way through, she'd stopped at nine, just because she thought she should, because she was sort of feeling full but wanted another. So they're made with cooked beans. So yes, okay, you have to cook the beans. Or you can buy them and rinse them off and stuff. And um, dried fruit. And there's just something about them that is fabulous. So cabbages, um, they're in, it's in here to remind all of us that it's a workhorse of the kitchen when you have winter. You know, whether it's that you turn it into kimchi or, you know, a version of cabbage, the cabbage family into kimchi, or whether you just hang it and dry it, which they do in parts of China and Tibet, or whether you turn it into cabbage rolls, or whether you just store it in your root cellar like this and then turn to it, and it's gonna get a little sadder looking as the winter goes on, but it's gonna be there for you. You know, it's, it's a remarkable vegetable, and we, we tend to kind of ignore it in this time of plenty and seasonless, but it's, it's amazing. Yes? He hasn't trimmed them. He hasn't trimmed. He hasn't trimmed the outside. These they're gorgeous are gorgeous in the foreground. Yes, they're gorgeous. Yeah, no, he's just trimmed off the outside leaves. But if you were storing them for winter, you'd leave the outside leaves on, of course. Right? Yes, uh, yes. There's cat, but they. I didn't come across cabbage rolls in Iran, and I don't know if they're there. But cabbage. Yeah, I mean, they have cabbage. Sure. Yes. Uh, the question is, the radishes were so clean. You know, people are just doing that. That. Look at my beautiful display thing in the market. This is work. It's called labor. Yeah. You know. Um, and so there usually are. Yeah. Um, I mean, the displays were... It's not, it's not accident that the pictures are beautiful. It's because people are doing that, you know, vedette thing. Yeah, and just it's a, it's a come on. It's lovely. And it's such a pleasure walking around the markets. Okay, so then um, the other thing is nuts. So we've gone through... So walnuts, you're going to have a walnut. There's walnuts in two of the dishes you're having today. Um, walnuts are very big, especially in Georgia um, and Armenia and Azerbaijan. Hazelnuts as well, though they're more expensive, more special. Um, and, uh, and also in northern Iran. And then you move south in Iran and you end up with pistachios, which you're going to have, oh yeah, there's nuts and something else in the Burani. So, um, you know, and nuts, of course, again, to go back to that fasting tradition thing, they're very useful if you are going meatless. You want some oil, some richness. that They give you that. But uh, moving into animal products now. So yogurt. Look at that. Yogurt, milk, yogurt. So people use, uh, and, they, and fresh cheese. So they use yogurt to make a drink. They dilute it with water, usually 50-50, and maybe put some ice in it. It's called duke, some version of duke all across the region. Um, uh, you can put sparkling water in there to make it frothy. I don't really like that, but um, and they, it's sold like that, or you can make your own. You can you know buy the yogurt and make your own, um, and uh, it's it's a very big thing and very refreshing. You can um, season it with a you know just put a little salt in it. You can put a little cumin or something. You know you're moving into this is again the the relation to lassi but it, I think, comes from here and moved down with the Mongols. Any of these meat and milk things are, you know, no, think about kebabs, think about yogurt. This is a nomadic adaptation. How do you work with your animals and not waste what they're giving you? Um, 
cheese then, cheese in Georgia, see the Georgian writing there. Um, and there's, this is a, a fairly aged, but not very old really, a farm cheese. And the thing in Georgia is, again, in Soviet times, you know, people were working frugally and so what you have is farmers um, and making fresh cheeses, you know, adding salt and, and then the cheese, you'd, you'd eat it fresh, but you might eat it in three months. And I think what happened, because Georgian cheeses tend to be very salty, is if some salt is good, well, you want to make sure it's not going to get wrecked, so you put more salt in and more salt in. The tradition is, has gotten very salty. And now there's exchanges and people coming in from, from the West and from other places and Georgians looking to retrieve their older traditions that got kind of smeared out with, with the sort of Soviet um, times. And it rather like, and uh, this is a good analogy, rather like Spain after Franco you know, that there was an awful loss in Spain of various artisanal traditions. And then Spanish cheeses, sort of, cheesemakers retrieved the traditions. Some of them didn't come from cheesemaking traditions themselves, but they asked grandmothers and so on. And because the Franco time, although it seemed endless at the time, was only, uh, you know, under 40 years, um, they were able to do that, I'm not gonna say easily, but they were able to do that. In Georgia, it's a little more tricky, it's longer, so, um, but my mouth's watering at the thought of the salty cheese. Um, and so, uh, so they're, having to, they're getting some help from outside as well, and it's very interesting. Um, and there's the cheese close up, a really nice fresh cheese. See that, uh, again in Georgia. I have a, a friend named Anna who's a cheesemaker. Yes? What, this consistency? This is um, a soft firm. You know, you can slice it as you see, but it's, it's soft, it's like a fresh cheese. Um, it's not, and then some of them are dried and crumbly. Um, no, it's, it's not like a feta, although feta is, is, in terms of taste, a good substitute of the suggestion in the filling for hachapuri, for example, I suggest a mix of feta for the sharpness and then a cheese that will give you some melting um, to give you both texture and, and sort of hit. Uh, this is, Sort of melty, yeah. More like a, hmm? It's, it looks like a ricotta, but it's, no, it's not really a ricotta either. And I, I don't know, I think it's that, you know, buffalo milk has so much more, um, there's fat, right? Well, no, ricotta isn't so fat. I don't know, it's just, it's, it's really itself, it's, uh, hmm? It's, it's a farmer's, that's a, this is a farmer's cheese. But this is a very well-made farmer's cheese, I have to say. I tasted it at Anna's and it was so unbelievable. Uh, you know, and she gave me, I have to tell you this one story. My friend Tamar, whom I stay with in Tbilisi, is a young woman in her 30s and um, uh, we met on Facebook and when she learned I was going to Georgia for the first time because of something I posted, um, she said, well, you know, I know you've been to Georgia before and you know what Georgians are like. And I'm saying to you as a Georgian that if you're coming to Georgia, you're staying with me and you know there's no argument. That was her message. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and she's fabulous. And so, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, there she is, she's got two little, so I wrote back and said, I hear you, but you know, you do have two little kids. You, it, life is complicated. You really don't want this. She said, I'm a Georgian. And that, you know, so, okay, I yield. And of course we've become good friends, yes? I don't think so, but go ask at the Georgian bakery if there's any Georgian cheese around. I mean, just, you know, that whole thing, try and make it happen. So I went with Anna, the cheesemaker whom Tamar had introduced me to. Tamar and I went to Anna's once, and she had a tasting arranged for us. 
So we were in her, she's a cheesemaker, but we were in her shop, and so it's cheese made by various people. This is how I know about the outside consultants. And of course, she had red wine because, you know, we're in Georgia. And so um, she had a very deliberate order she wanted us to taste in, and she wouldn't tell us anything about any of them. It wasn't a test, it was just, you know, getting us to pay attention. So we're, we're eating our way through, and there's the salty one, there's the this. There was one that was really interesting. I said, well, this is, this sort of reminds me a little, I mean, it feels strange to say this sitting here in Georgia, but this reminds me a little of, of Gruyere. And then she had a little smile. We keep going. And then finally, the last one, she gives us a taste. And it's a fresh cheese. It was just made the previous week, like a very, you know, young cow's cheese, uh, maybe two weeks earlier. It was unbelievable. And we were just, Anna, what is this? It was made from milk from a single cow. The guy was trying this experiment, the cheesemaker, the farmer, was trying an experiment to see about the taste of the pasture and the taste of the cheese. And it was, and we had had no warning, as I say. And it wasn't sort of, oh, and now here's the best one or anything like that. It was just, yikes. I've never tasted anything like it. It was incredible. And I think it's that whole thing of it's like, it's like single malt whiskey instead of blended, or it's like a single varietal wheat and bread made from a single varietal wheat instead of a blended. There's a, a distinctiveness, a, you're really tasting it, or like, like some of those mezcals where, whether you like it or not, where you're tasting the actual plant. That's what it felt like with this. It was really incredible. Somebody had a question here? No. Anyway, the other, oh, the one where she gave the little smile, she said, there's a Swiss cheesemaker being helping this person. Maybe that's why it tastes of Gruyere. Fascinating, right? Who knows? I mean, who knows what this, you know, just really interesting. Okay. Um, so now we're moving into serious animal products, in other words, meat. And this is back in Persepolis. This is, again, people bringing offerings. This is a freeze from, you know, 2,000 years ago um, in Persepolis in one of the staircases. Just stunning. Um, and there's the sheep. In the rain, in northern, in northern Iran, not, not all fluffy, but kind of saggy and well, the, the wool is moving. And you'll notice that some of them have fat tails. Some of them are goats, yeah? Yeah, it does look like a turnip. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's natural. Fat-tailed sheep are endemic throughout uh, Central Asia, and the fat is really prized. It's stored there, so you have that as your cooking medium. So especially if you're a nomad, you don't have oil. Your, all your oil is going to come from either milk products or the fat from the fat tail. So um, you'll often see in old recipes, Uzbek recipes, and in flatbreads, there was, there was talk about this in my flatbread book, but the, the, um, there's a, a square of fat in, the, in, in your line of uh, cubes of meat in a kebab, and that's basically to give you some fat because there just isn't any in the, in the meal, and much prized. You know, of course, fat is calories, and if food security is your issue, Calories is what you want. Um, okay, so we're in Azerbaijan. Yes. Sorry. Oh, there you are. Sorry. <laughs> we're dodging the pillar. Uh, goat and sheep, are they used for wool, meat, and, and, and milk? The sheep aren't particularly used for meat. I asked a lot about goat and sheep milk. Nobody's particularly, these days, doing that, uh, th that I know of. Uh, so we're talking about uh, wool and, uh, and meat that they're being used for that I know of. I do not know what breeds they are. Um, but it's, an, it's a very interesting question. And of course, again, because of Soviet times, the, the, the landrace breeds will have been messed with. 
but there may be people trying to reestablish them, I don't know. Um, so Azerbaijan, so picture this in, in Baku, um, a day's less, no, three hours drive east of here on the Caspian. There, there are Rolls Royces and Mercedes and BMWs and oil money in the hands of very few people. And shops that you see only in London or New York or Paris. And when you get outside town, the intercity transport, nobody's investing in really anything. And there's guys on horseback. I'm not saying it's bad to be on horseback. I'm just saying it's, there's an incredible gap between the oligarchs, as it were. Um, it's not exactly the, the ruling. What's the word? Aut autocracy? Um, and and uh, basically uh, Aliyev and his cronies and the rest of the country. I mean, they have electricity, there's people on computers, all that kind of stuff, but the infrastructure generally is, is very lacking. And so people live frugally. Okay, so that was one kind of herd and herding. This is in Iran, and this is, there's nomads. They're more Arab than Persian in their ethnic and cultural heritage. And I was in central Iran, or southern Iran, east of Shiraz, and I was staying with a guy on a farm, and he took me up. His second wife is the daughter of this woman. And so we went up for the day. And there's this very lucky thing happened, which is that, so there's the tent, right? And these nomads were going to move the following week, because this was late October, um, down to the south coast, remember, down on the Gulf of Hormuz, because in the, they're here in the summer pasture. They moved down to, to the winter pasture uh, and live there in the winter. And it takes them about 20 days walking with their animals down. And they pack everything up. They have a small house they've built now. And they can lock the door so they can leave a few things. But basically, everything gets packed up and goes. Anyway, this was the day after the Feast of the Sacrifice, uh, Eid al-Adha, or uh, Kurban in, in Turkish. And in Iran, I was in Iran for that. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to be there for that. In Iran, it's not a big deal, except for people who've made the Hajj. So for everybody else, like in Turkey, for example, you see animals standing very sadly on street corners in Istanbul and other places the night before, and children feeding them and patting them, and the next day they're hanging up with their throat slit. And because, no, because it's like Thanksgiving. It, everybody gets fed. So if, you're, if you have money, you buy animals, you feed your family, you feed your neighbors, you know, it's, it's a really big sharing thing. So, but in Iran, no, it's not, it, it isn't a big festival, and, but, if you've been on Hajj, it is. It turns out that in this family, her husband was a Haji. He'd been on Hajj. And therefore, they'd had a feast the day before, and they'd fed their neighbors. And I could think, oh, it's too bad I wasn't there for that. But what I was there for, and this was even better, was she was using the rest of the animal the day I was there. So she was cleaning off the head and the innards and the, and the legs and it, to make kalipoche which is a very, very famous dish. Um, all through Iran, normally you're just at the butchery, you see heads and legs, heads and legs, heads and legs. And what you do is you simmer them together and it makes a broth. You're not eating the, the bits of the animal, you're extracting the flavor from the bits of the animal and eating it with bread and so on, really delicious. But I was watching her in a pre-industrial situation, cleaning the head by hand and lighting the fire and heating the water. And, and then of course I got to have lunch with her. So fabulous. So it was just really interesting. Um, and so here we are then. So there's the bits. You're not eating the bits. What's being dished out is just this incredible broth. Unbelievable. Flavored with, a f with salt and a few uh, herbs. Yes. 
No, there's no tomato. There's probably a pinch of turmeric because we're far enough south um, in... in uh, no, no tomato. Um, and then here we are eating. There's the haji's hands. There's the bread that I mentioned earlier, the nanatiri, the, the unleavened um, bread that I talked about in Kurdistan. See, and you can, you can break it and put it in the soup, you know, or you can just eat a bit of it in between. Now, the rice there and the chicken was brought by the, the second wife, the, by the, the wife of the guy that took me up there to his parents to, you know, as a present. She cooked it in. But I, of course, and I say, tell the story about this, wasn't at all interested in the rice and chicken. Who wants rice and chicken when I can eat that food that I've watched be prepared? It was astonishing good luck. Um, so again, this is, I don't show these at cooking school necessarily, but I want you guys to see these sh shots. Yes. The question is, I was, the sort of question statement is, you were, you were adventurous in trying all foods, whereas I would be super particular, you're saying. Well, how, how could I, how could I be particular when I'm in somebody else's country or in somebody else's house? And, and the deal is, so the things I don't like, to answer your question, because that's part of your question, the things I'm afraid of is not really anything. The things I uh, don't like, no, well, you know, the things I don't like, I don't like milk. I don't like strawberries. I don't like watermelon, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, it's just stupid, but, um, but I'll eat them all, and I'll drink milk. In Mongolia, it was really hard. There was so much milk product. It was like, okay, hold your breath and do it, you know. The day the woman in Turkmenistan, long ago in 89, I, somebody took me out to this woman outside Ashgabat, and she had a camel and she had a camel with a calf and so of course I'm a guest and so she hands me a glass she milks the camel and then she hands me a glass of camel milk well this is you know a little challenging for a person like me so I um, just but I had practice because I don't like milk and I've never liked it since a child ever so I had practice as a child going to visit friends you know and the mum would put out the sandwich and the glass of milk and well you're kind of stuck so I learned that you, what you do is you hold the sandwich or whatever, hopefully something, in one hand. You have the glass of milk in the other. You, hold, you take a deep breath. You swallow the whole glass of milk at once, right? <laughs> right? And then you have to take one breath, which is, gives you the smell of it, the awful taste of it, the feel of it in your throat, the yuckiness of it. And then you take a quick, you throw the sandwich right in there, yeah. right? And you, and you hope the sandwich has more flavor than just, you know, white bread. And, and then that's how you do it. So with the camel milk, I asked if there was any bread, which was really rude. But I just sort of thought, you know, I really need a little help here. And then I did the same thing, except I only, I just drank half of it because it was one of the, it's one of those cultures where you can take some and not use the rest, you know. But uh, anyway, yes. So there's your answer, sort of. There was a revolt anywhere here? Yeah. Actually, actually never, actually never. But um, I mean, milk isn't my friend. Cow's milk isn't my friend. Camel milk was fine. Uh, buffalo yogurt is fine. Buffalo milk is fine. Fresh, fresh cow cheeses in Georgia are a little hard for me, but that delicious one wasn't. But the, 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 the milk is not pasteurized. I think my issue is pasteurized milk. And I don't digest it well. So, but I think that starts from I never drank milk. So my system never wanted milk for whatever reason. And I mean, not to talk about my stupid digestion, but I mean, it, it, it's just an impediment to have things you can't eat. So I just pretend I have nothing I can't eat and I just plow ahead. Um, and you know, so what? 
And diseases, no, no, I, I have had, I had Giardia once, that's normal. But you know, people are very careful about their food cleanliness. And in a, in a non-industrialized food system, the food is gonna be generally speaking, generally speaking, cleaner. And people don't want to waste anything. They certainly don't want their family to get sick. They know exactly where it's come from. We're pretty close. And they're not going to go back to that guy if he gives them dirty meat. And they're not going to go back to that woman if she gives them uh, whatever, an egg that is something or other. So in fact, I feel much, I mean, it just doesn't occur to me to worry about, and maybe it's just a lack of my imagination, but it doesn't occur to me to worry about hygiene. Okay. I mean, I'm not in India. I pay attention on the street. I don't generally eat uh, raw vegetables in India, but I'll eat onions, um, uncooked onions. And in the south, I'll eat anything. In the north, I'm a little more careful. And I tend to avoid meat in India unless it's very cooked. And in, in Mexico, I was told by somebody when I went to Oaxaca in 92, um, she said, you know, I've been taking tour groups to Mexico. and. And she said, uh, and I've discovered one secret to having, not, having the people not get sick on my tour groups. She said, we don't eat soup, you know, the sopa class, but when it's actually soup, we don't eat soup or, or, or sort of stews, wet things, unless they're really hot. And she said, and suddenly I have nobody sick. So it's, you know, you just kind of navigate, right? And I think, basically, I'm fairly foliated at this point, you know, with, you know, the bacteria of various places, you know, you know, they've made a home there somehow. They're talking to each other in whichever language, you know. Um, so yeah, meat. So this, you can tell because it's pork that we're in Georgia. Um, it could, we'd be in Georgia or Armenia, but we're in Georgia. And uh, this is for you. I, do, I really don't put these shots into the shorter show, but I needed you to see this. And, and who, the cat is looking up at the butcher, hoping he's going to drop something else on her, right? The butcher's standing above, t looking, looking amiable. Um, uh, this is in Azerbaijan. I just really like the shot. Um, I have a shot very like this, but uh, with more of the woman showing, uh, from Portugal. I mean, we're talking country tradition. It's really, you know, it's very similar. This is not, this could be Europe. It's very close to Europe. Um, and then, okay, what do we do with these dead pieces of meat, um, or creatures that are about to be dead pieces of meat. Um, well, this is, um, this is pity, um, or it's also called, um, my mind's just gone blank. Oh my gosh, that's awful. Um, it's in Azerbaijan especially and, uh, and Iran, um, and it's a, a dish of cooked uh, beef or lamb um, and potatoes, and there's lots of liquid. Uh, this is, you can tell it's Azerbaijan because there's sumac here. There wouldn't be sumac here generally in, in Iran. And um, you ha it gets served with a, a, an empty bowl and a spoon and a mortar, a little p pestle thing, and bread. So the first thing you do is you tear some bread up and put it in the empty bowl. Then you take this spoon and hold back the meat and potatoes and pour the liquid into the bowl. And you have your soup with the bread in it. Right. And then you take the little mortar thing and you mash the potatoes and the meat together. The meat's very cooked. And that's your second course. It's brilliant. Yes. Oh, yes. Dizzy. That's right. I just, I had a Z, but I couldn't find What? Ab well, Abgusht. Yes. And Abgusht is the correct name. Dizzy is the, is the, is the street name. And it's a little bit different. Abgusht is much more smashed. Well, they, 
Well, yeah, it, but it depends where you are and who. But yes, and so these are there's an Azeri version and there's a there's a, a Persian version and there's several Persian versions as you know. And it depends if you're on the street. Sometimes the one in ones I saw in Tehran. Um, yeah, there was quite a lot of red in it, which I never understood what it was. Um, and so I give a really basic version of it in the book. But ab means water, and gush is meat, so it's meat in liquid. It's a stew. Yes. No, really, for the, probably for the probably for the salad. But you know, it's it's there. It's just so it's it's on the table like salt and pepper in Azerbaijan. And this is in a little, not eatery. That's even. It graces it with a little more than it had, but it's sort of a street side in the bazaar in Sheki in Azerbaijan. Um, okay, and then another element. So we've gone through, you know, greens and nuts and dairy and all of that. Fruit, tart fruit, used with savory dishes. So these are sour plums. Of course, the pears are not tart. The pears are just beautiful. Um, but uh, sour plums, and I, there's a number of dishes that call for sour plums, and I suggest substituting tomatillos because they have a very similar acidity. They're much easier to get hold of. And it also has the same look, so it feels right to me. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is stupid, but anyway. Um, and so, marvelous. And it's, this is really a Persian, basic Persian thing that you have this tart, tart fruits, uh, tart pomegranates, um, dried apricots that are not too sweet. And that's a tricky thing to try and find. You have to sort of supplement with lemon juice if you can't find tart ones. Um, and these sour plums. Uh, the Georgians use them a lot. And you can use damsons. You could absolutely use damsons, but um, you know, the season is like two minutes long. So irritating. Um, but I mean, damsons are very tough. And so in fact, in, they probably have damsons in Minnesota. We have them in Ontario. There was a, they were used as rootstock uh, in the 30s um, in, in orchards along Lake Ontario. And then there was a terrible, two hard winters in the 40s, and this is a farmer told me this from the area, and it killed all the plum trees, but it, the rootstock survived, and so there are these damson trees, uh, you know, that rose out of the rootstock. It, very interesting, yes? I've, I've seen those tart, sour Excellent, you guys, now you know. Hey, who needs tomatillos? You can just, no, but just, yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is they come dried as well, but the fresh ones are so nice, and there's a lovely gushiness to them when you bite into them when they're cooked. Fabulous. Anyway, then, um, so, and pomegranates, tart and sweet. Um, and uh, then, of course, in the region, they get turned into fruits, get preserved, turned into a form of fruit leather. So it's, it's a mashed and then spread out in sheets to dry. And so, isn't that beautiful? It looks like you're in Italy ordering fancy shoes. Um, and now even you see it with um, kiwi. You see a green color one. It's really, the, every, every fruit is used. But if you think about it, if you don't have jars or if you don't have heat or if space is at a premium, this is the, as long as you have some sun or somewhere to dry things, this is the economical way of preserving fruit for winter. And you can use pieces of these, if it's tart fruit, as your flavoring. So say you don't have tart plums, you can put this in. Or say you don't have pomegranate molasses. I see you nodding in the back row, thank you. And um, it's just remarkable. Um, and so then the other thing that there is in the region, this is in Tbilisi in Georgia. This is the woman my friend Tamar thinks is the most reliable supplier of this, but you know, people buy it in the market. Again, it was 
everybody made it before. It was made in the country. Now, most often, people are shopping in the market. There's dried fruits, of course. You've got you know, figs and apples and strings. Um, but these kind of odd candle, hand-dipped candle things with the t pointy ends, this is in Georgian, Trupcella. And it's, it's a really unbelievably, again, practical way, although it's labor-intensive, um, of storing nuts and fruit. So you take walnuts or hazelnuts, remember we saw them earlier, on, and you string them. And then you take that string, and it is hand-dipped, and you dip it into a thick fruit puree. Okay, Most often grape, actually. Different colors of grape. There's pale grape. They'll, they'll be mixed up. And, you, and then you dip it again. And then you, okay. and then you end up with, your, with this. Now, what's that doing? Well, it's going to dry. But the, and so it gets quite hard. By, win, by spring, it's pretty hard. And, but you cut it with a knife later, and you have these slices with a nut in the middle and the fruit on the outside. What it's doing now, it's a confit. It's using fruit as your fat in a confit. It's sealing the nuts off. It took me a while to realize, right, of course, duh, um, so that the nuts don't go rancid. The nuts are in really good shape, and they're, of course, preserved from being eaten by rodents, right? And um, it's the little kid you have to worry about because it's such a treat. Because by if, when you're coming into early spring, and again, Lent or the fasting time for the Christians, you know, everyone is you know, desperate for spring and for green, but also just for, for anything sort of that tastes of life in summer. And you ha to have these nuts and fruit, so then you cut them in slices as you'd cut, say, an O. Henry bar almost. It's that kind of crunch cut thing. Um, not very sweet because the fruit is not very sweet. Yes? They use hazelnuts. No, they don't have uh, pistachios in Georgia. So it's hazelnuts or walnuts. It's hard work piercing them, right? I mean, people, you know, you, you're skilled. You got to be skilled. This is not me. This is somebody else. But it's really amazing. So, Churchella. So when I go, I bring back, you know, I bring them back. Um, oh, and sorry. Uh, yeah, well, you asked those Georgians at the bakery. And the other thing is, see the bottles there? That, that is bottles of ajika, the Georgian um, um, pastes. There's a, one made with uh, red peppers, uh, fresh red peppers. It's not cooked. It's only very salty, and that's how it's preserved. And I just made my red ajika last week before coming away on tour. On, and, uh, and, then, and there's also green ajika, which is made with fresh green herbs and dill seed and so on. There's recipes for both in the book. Highly recommended as a very easy way to give pleasure to your friends if you want to give them presents at Christmas or something. Um, and to you, of course. Pistachios. Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they beautiful? I'd never had fresh pistachios before. Um, really... This is in Kerman, yes, a little sweet. This is in Kerman, and it was just at the end of the pistachio harvest. Uh, this is, there's no recipe for Persian ice cream in the book, but I just had to put this picture in, because this is in Isfahan, and, uh, and he's eating, uh, it's a kind of a float. It's ice cream, uh, Persian ice cream on top of uh, car carrot juice with pistachios on top and a little rose water. And the, and the, and the ice cream is flavored with a little rose water. Um, it's, uh, and then I, had, I took the shot and then I ordered mine. That's right, that's right. It's, it's thickened, uh, yep. It's thickened with a pounded, it's, a, it's an iris tuber and it's usually very, very, very sweet. I mean, it's too sweet for my taste, but it's an incredible texture. It's fabulous to eat, yeah. No, it's the, it's, yeah, it's the root and it's, and I'm just trying to think of the word for it. Sorry, my brain is just, sorry. No, it's not. 
no, it's not. Um, I'll look after because well, because um, I I did write a down of oh I can't do this. No, I'll tell you later. I'll look. Okay, so because um, you're getting hungry and I'm taking a long time. Um, so Rosewater, this is in Kashan. So there's, it's distilled, all these different uh, waters, and this is a place that does it, and then of course you can go in and you know, have a tea and stuff. Rose water? Yes. Uh, well, rose water, the trick with rose water is a little goes a long way, never double the quantities. If you're doubling the recipe, leave the same amount and then add maybe a very tiny touch more because it can be very cloying, like too much is way too much. It's just like saffron. You've got to be very restrained with it. But a hint of it is extraordinary. Too much and, well, the association is often with soap, right? Because there's often rose is a, is a scent used in scented soaps. Um, yes. So the question is, and tell me your name. Susan's from Kerala, and um, she's asking how do I go about uh, figuring out the recipes, developing the recipes, um, uh, reproducing the recipes or the dishes, um, given that, for example, when she's tried to ask her mother in Kerala, South India, um, for, um, her mother will say, well, it's a pinch of this, a pinch of that. So she went last time to Kerala, she took her spoons, her measuring cups, her everything, you know, to, okay, they're her aunts, and she's really going to find out. She just didn't get anywhere with them. Okay, so, so first of all, I want to say that Kerala, Kerala cuisine is wonderfully complex and is not something I would be able to figure out without, uh, without one of those. The best thing for Kerala food is actually to get one of those home ec um, school uh, cookbooks. Get about three or four or five of them. There's an enormous resource of, of cookbooks in Malayalam, in English, you know, um, some of the Tamil dishes are similar, you know, and if you look there, you can find your way and then you can think, oh yeah, yeah, but not this because my mother didn't put that in. And that's your way to navigate, because Carol's food is very complicated. None of this is very, is, is that many layers that it's in, indecipherable, okay? So if I'm watching, um, I'm getting physical, uh, I'm my body's learning if I'm in somebody's kitchen in a homestay, which is where I stay, um, helping them shape a dumpling or something. So I, then I have to figure out how to say to you on the page, okay, pick up a pinch of the, roll the dough out to this. Okay, pick up a pinch between your thumb and forefinger on your right hand, then, you know, it's, that's laborious. But I'm, what I'm describing then is my, my own physical memory of it, right? Uh, okay, so that's that part. In terms of the amounts, I'm taking photographs, I'm tasting, I'm tasting a lot. It's not unfamiliar anyway. I think you should give yourself more credit and trust your palate and then just navigate. Yeah, you did it. Yeah. 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 So you just, I mean, you just do and you just have to try and you're going to, and you just have to try and, and, and be critical of, your, of, of the result until it feels right. It means eating a lot when you're wherever you are. You've eaten a lot because that's the food you grew up in. Me, I'm eating a lot all the time. Um, yes. Oh, we have to wrap up. Okay, well, then I'm going to race through, okay? So, agata, which is a, an Armenian suite in, in a countryside, and here's, oops, and here's the woman who showed me it. And really the thing I want to say is this whole region is about hospitality. That's the 
That's the thing that's the underlying thing. There's a generosity to the stranger. So this is a woman who, see the hatchet? She's been making tomato, speaking of tomatoes, she's been making, preserving tomatoes for winter, cooking them over a fire, you know, in jars to put them up for winter in a mountain village in, in Armenia called Tatev. But she, and she's the oldest one there and everybody else is having fun and they've invited me in for tutovka and now she's making coffee. She figures everybody should have some coffee to chill them out a little. It's only 11 in the morning and so, She's the one doing all the work of cooking, and then she's made coffee, and there, there's uh, Armenian coffee. Um, tea in Kurdistan. Tea is the, the social enabler in Kurdistan. Tea in Iran. This is the haji, and here he is dipping sugar into his tea. You see the yellow sugar is rock sugar, which is a big thing in Iran and remarkable. Haji, he's, he, went, he made the haj. He's the guy who made the Hajj, the, the pilgrimage. And this is another, again, I was invited into this village in near Mashhad and the women sitting with tea. But the thing I want you to take away is there's, there's young people there. There's, yes, it, this is in Iran. Um, there's young people, this is the nomad kids. And they're moving forward. They're moving into a modern world. This is a Kurdish schoolgirl, And they're... The, the reason I wrote the book is to ha help people connect with this extraordinary culinary tradition, but also the humanity that's there. We tend to read headlines and think of, and this is in Armenia, and think about um, headlines and judge people by their government, and I wouldn't want to be judged by my government. I'm not going to ask you. And, um, <laughs> and um, so, so I just want you to be reminded of just the, the people. This is in Kurdistan at a festival. These are Kurdish guys. I stayed with this guy. They're two brothers on the end and a brother-in-law. That's where I took that picture of the green hills. I was with these guys on a, on a junket. Um, this is the beekeeper close in. And Iran. Iran, we tend to think of as serious and severe, you know, as she looks. This is in Yazd, taking the bread home at lunch. These are more like lavash. Um, but in fact, this is the Iran that I think of. This is in Shiraz, and she's out, it's a weekend, and she's having her picture taken in the garden. And in her little manteau that's really short, and her scarf that's way back on her head, and you know, she's obeying the law barely, and it's great. And because there's an awful lot of, there's huge culture and dynamism in, in Iran. It's, it's just extraordinary, the films, the books, and just people behind their closed doors are living very fully. Um, this is not your picture of Iran either, right? This kind of just, okay, here we are. And nor is this, and this is in Darband in, in Tehran. Um, so I just want you to take that away with you because I think it's important to remember that we're all, we all have our kitchens and our kids we're cooking food for and our relationships and they don't make it into the newspaper, yes? I was in, uh, uh, no, uh, no, Iran, I was there in uh, uh, three years ago. Um, Georgia, I was there in the spring uh, the last time, but then the previous fall, and yeah. Uh huh. As a woman traveling on my own, never had any problems in any of these places. Met, had casual encounters, had, you know, just no issues at all. I mean, I'm a woman of a certain age, right? So, you know, if I were 23, 23-year-old 23 kind of chicklet, I don't, I don't think so, though. People, you just... You make your judgments and you engage. No, it's really, and that's where this, this hospitality, the generosity to the stranger is really amazing. Yeah, again, it's, it, the, the cliches don't, don't hold. 
you know, yes. Oh, okay. Um, so Nancy, Nancy who does all, right? Like, can we just clap for Nancy, please? What? <laughs> Kathy, Kathy. Sorry, Kathy. So Kathy, so, uh, and Joan. Uh, so there are uh, eggplant roll-ups which have a spiced, um, not chili hot, but just a spiced flavored uh, walnut paste in them and they're rolled up around it. Um, and they're from Georgia. There's a, um, there's a burani, which is a, a Persian style of dish where you have cooked vegetable and it's swirled, either completely blended or not, with uh, a drained thick yogurt. And then there's maybe some fried onion in it. There might be some pistachios. There are, because it's, it's very pretty. She's done a beet one. Um, there's a picture of a span, uh, spinach one in the book. I'm, away, I'm too close to the speakers. Uh, that's what was making it blur, was you were close to the speakers. And it makes the, the, this thing mess up. Um, and then there's, a, there's a, 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 a pile of, it's a, I call it a pate, but it's sort of a paste, a dip. Um, it should have olive oil, or it should have oil in it, and the oil was omitted, so it's a bit stiffer than it should be. But it's, it's really plain. It's cooked kidney beans with a lot of walnuts whizzed in the processor. Should have some oil in it, salt, and that's really it, and some fresh tarragon. It's unbelievably good, and I urge you to try it, especially if you have um, vegan friends. It's kind of, it's a get out of jail free card. Uh, when you're having to take something to a potluck, you make it the day before, it tastes even better. Oh, and there's some garlic in it. Uh, it's from Armenia. And um, so, thanks for your patience, everybody. Oh, and there's, and there's, and there's cookies. They're, they're uh, paklava from Yazd in Iran. <laughs>